As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicine they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicine issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said, talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who've dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by Global Health Impact Project in partnership with PlankSip. Herzog works at the intersection of political philosophy and economic thought. Between 2016 and 2019, she was a professor for political philosophy and theory at the Technical University of Munich. Since 2019, she works at the Faculty of Philosophy and the Center for Philosophy, Politics, Economics of the University of Groningen. I believe I have that correct, right, Lisa? More or less. (laughs) More or less. Okay. She holds a master's in economics from LMU Munich and a MST in philosophy and DPhil in political theory from the University of Oxford. She has worked at or visited the universities of St. Gallen, Leuven, Frankfurt, Maine, Utrecht, and Stanford. She was a Rhodes Scholar from 2007 to 2011. Herzog has published on the philosophical dimensions of markets, both historically and systemically, liberalism and social justice, ethics and organizations, and the future of work. Her current focus is on workplace democracy, professional ethics, and the role of knowledge in democracies. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hi. I'd like to start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career to date, both academically and professionally. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you've come to being? Yeah, well, I I was always very interested in both values and principles, what's right and wrong, but then also in how societies organize themselves, institutions, practices. And that led me to study philosophy and economics. And then I realized that I also had to read sociology and political science and all these other fields at the intersection of these things, because it's all intertwined in the end. And I did my PhD on the history of ideas and then moved to more systematic questions afterwards. And I've always been interested in how we can bring these perspectives together. So the philosophical perspective of values, principles, right and wrong, and a more empirically based perspective of, well, how should we organize these things? Should we have the market or the state take care of certain things? What are markets and states anyway? And now I'm at at Groningen at a center for philosophy, politics and economics, where it's exactly that kind of interdisciplinary research and the encounters between the disciplines that we try to organize and put forward. 
Yeah, an interdisciplinary approach is very progressive, I find. And I think it's very interesting to hear about your background and your motivations and experience. So today, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the FAIR priority model. And what can you tell us about the FAIR priority model? Yeah, so I was one member of a pretty large working group, which Sikh Emanuel got together when the corona crisis had begun. And he sent out this email to lots of people. And I first thought it was this kind of academic spam. But then on second reading, I realized it was actually really serious and important to think about how the world should go about distribute vaccines globally. And the assumption was there will be vaccines. We can be pretty sure about this development happening. But the question will be, who will get access to them? And usually when philosophers think about distributive problems, they have a sort of static picture. They don't think about temporal distribution so much. But this one is very much a temporal problem. It's about who gets these vaccines first and what are the criteria for that? And it's also a problem where empirical and normative questions are very closely intertwined. And one of the challenges that we realized early on when we had these weekly Zoom calls then to discuss these questions was that you don't want to use indicators or criteria that would build in counterintuitive consequences. For example, if you go for something that sounds very nice at first glance, like let's first give countries vaccines for the medical staff, then you might unintentionally privilege the richer countries that have more medical staff. So that's something you would want to avoid. And it's also an international problem. So we try to base this whole model on very general, broadly accepted values. We've gone for three such values, benefiting people and limiting harm, which I guess, especially to medical students, that, that is what medicine in a way is all about. Prioritizing the disadvantaged, so making sure that those who are already disadvantaged don't get further disadvantaged, and equal moral concern, so treat all human beings as having the same moral weight, as it were. And then developed a three-phase model where in the first phase, the aim of vaccine distribution would be to focus on reducing premature deaths. In the second phase, you would also take into account serious economic and social deprivations, which you had because of the, the lockdowns. Think about, for example, the situation in India when all these people were traveling back to their home villages, very traumatic scenes. And here, for example, you would have a clear priority for poorer countries who would have a harder time dealing with these lockdowns. And the third phase then would be to return to full functioning. And what we also tried to do is develop some proposals for how you would measure where countries stand on these different criteria. So to get a sense of how you would implement this. And the idea was that by providing such a model, at least there is a sense of orientation of what a fair distribution would look, look like. None of us expected that this would be implemented by the UN or whatever institution the, precisely the way we had described it. Because when we were working on this, it was already clear that the richer countries would buy vaccines for their own citizens first. Some people would say hoard vaccines because they over-ordered like eight times the population size in some cases. But the hope was that there would be points in time where it would be useful to have that kind of guidelines for thinking about, okay, who should get it next? And as you probably know, 
there is an international institution under the guidance of the World Health Organization and some other organizations, COVAX, that tries to organize access to vaccines for countries that have trouble paying for them themselves. But it's currently very much underfunded. So, I mean, I think the world is pretty far away from what we've described here. Of course, it's still intellectually interesting to think about such a model, but yeah, it's, it's also a bit depressing to think about how badly the world is doing right now in terms of ac- making vaccines really accessible to everyone. Yeah, one idea that pops into my head just in response to what you're talking about is the case for nationalism. I'm not really getting into that, but I, I think that you know, as policymakers, I'm sure there is a case for nationalism, which even if we're looking at a a distribution of vaccines, there's still certain nations that I guess globally cooperate and and that's got to count for something and they need to have the, you know, the infrastructure and in place to be able to make that happen. Would that resonate at all with you in terms of the complexity of, of this type of program? Well, we did have very intense debates about the role of nationalism for that question. What we ended up saying in the paper is that maybe there is a limited case that can be made for vaccine nationalism, as it got called. Also taking into account that politicians are elected by their citizens in order to take good care of them. So there is a a challenge of how you would (laughs) convince voters to, to prioritize other countries first. But what you argue then is, well, that's justifiable if you really have, you know, a very dynamic pandemic development and the, the R factor so is higher than one. So the numbers are increasing when it goes below one, then that case gets weaker. And some members of our group, I, I wasn't really involved in this, but others have then followed up and, and discussed this question of vaccine nationalism in, in more detail, arguing that once corona gets the character of the other virus diseases that we already have, like the flu, like it's manageable as a public health problem. It's not zero. It will still be around, but it's manageable. There's no risk of overburdening the healthcare system. Then the case for vaccine nationalism really becomes very weak. And and just one last thing about this. Some people made arguments about, okay, didn't the richer countries pay for this? Didn't they invest taxpayers' money, wasn't it in these countries that many of the discoveries were made? So sort of pointing to some merits of these countries. I think these arguments are pretty weak, actually, because it's just a matter of luck and also of pretty unjust historical events, including colonialism, various forms of global capitalism that have been pretty unfair to many poorer countries that have put the richer countries in a position to now be the first to develop these vaccines and to pay for them. And I've, normatively speaking, I think that's a very weak base for saying, oh, we made them, so we deserve to get them first. Because what's the basis of that? Those countries are privileged in many, many ways. And if you think about the global structures of our economic system, so that's not a base for saying, oh, we have the right to determine who gets access to vaccines or not. That's very reassuring for a universal equity, I guess that would be a fair statement to say. So can you explain just a little bit more about the transmissibility rates and how you use the benchmarking of transmissibility in terms of, you know, the RT factors of below one in your thinking? And yeah. In- 
your, yeah, your share I'm paper? Not, I'm, not, I'm not a medical scholar. I'm, that's stuff that I just learned when Corona started, but I guess many of us learned this from the media. So the idea here is that one infected person on average infects more than one person, then the, the, the pandemic is growing. That's when you have RT above one. And when it's below one, then one infected person on average infects less than one person. And that means the total numbers are going down. And if numbers are going down, that can also actually happen quite quickly. It's just if they are going up, it can also happen quite quickly. And one thing that I think many of us realized when the pandemic started was that these exponential processes, exponential growth, that's something that's very hard to understand. And we have very little bad intuitions about this thing. I mean, there are all these examples, like if you go for doubling a certain number of things every time or in every round, as it were, how fast things get really, really large. And, and I think that that is one example of a situation there our moral intuitions might not be our best guidance because we really need to listen to the scientists here. If R is even something like 1.0 something, it's still larger than one. And in that sense, it's growing. And it, I mean, if, if it gets to something like 1.5 or so, it's growing really, really fast and it's really, really dangerous. And our societies are not prepared for that kind of growth. Yeah, good point on the intuitions, right? The lily pad fills the day before it's completely saturated, right? So yeah. Yeah. very good to point out the intuitions that we have as a species is, you know, a little bit misguided. And so that's really good. So let me move on to the the focus of the, the FAIR priority model on distribution to countries that meet certain needs or standards of ability to distribute. I would say that should a country prioritize its own citizens before? And you've touched on this already. I mean, we're still, you know, working with, uh, for the most part, liberalized democracies across the world. So they're voted based off of what we do for citizens. And the concept of global citizen isn't always ubiquitous with a national citizen in, you know, in the minds of the world population. So how can you reconcile this in a fair and equitable way? This is a, a pretty complicated, you know, philosophical problem to unravel. How did you, how do you approach it? It is. And it comes up not only with regard to vaccines, but also with regard to so many other issues. If you think about climate justice, for example, who carries the burdens of climate change, you have similar issues about national versus international stakeholders or who should even be within the realm of yeah, who we consider the community of justice, as it were. I mean, as we already discussed, a certain degree of vaccine nationalism may be justifiable, or at least it's something we have to accept as a fact of how our institutions work, maybe to some extent also how human psychology works. We probably feel a bit closer to our co-citizens than to strangers. The challenge that we are currently failing at as a global society is that we are now at a point where in many, many countries, all those who want to get vaccinated did get vaccinated. And the question is, what are these countries now doing to support other countries to also get enough vaccines? And I mean, there is some, I mean, there's some stuff going on. It's not as if no international cooperation were there, but there were very intense debates about mandatory licensing. So to be able to produce more and not to be hindered by intellectual property rights, 
would that even do the trick or would you need more technology transfer? And my view on these things is that in this case, the ethical and the prudent considerations for the Western and rich countries actually come together. So I, in a way, it's really an easier challenge than for many other areas where you might have tensions between prudence and morality. But here it's pretty clear that if the coronavirus continues to be passed on in other parts of the world. There might be mutations, there might be new versions of the virus that the vaccines don't cover, and the whole world will still be held hostage by this pandemic. So it's very much also in the interest of the richer countries to make sure that everyone on this globe gets access to vaccines. And yet we see a failure to, to really act quickly and, and, and to really make sure that all the money that is needed is, is made available. So that is really a big challenge, but I think it's a challenge not so much in the sense that there are countervailing philosophical or moral considerations, one pulling in the direction of doing more and another pulling in the direction of doing less. I think at this point, it's really very much a, a policy challenge of international cooperation, of governments convince, convincing their voters that this is the right thing to do and so on, and of, and of international coordination. So the, there's also a question of where does philosophy sort of end and where does practical politics begin here? And I think with regard to the current phase, I mean, from a philosophical point of view, I'm not sure whether there are any philosophers who would disagree on this basic imperative to get vaccines to everyone. Yeah, well, I'm going to pause for a minute and focus a little bit about the individual versus, and I think this will be a nice way to kind of summarize this section of the interview, but the individual needs versus the country focus. And it seems that you and your colleagues have focused more on the national aspects of this. And I think you've alluded to it already in our discussion. I think it has more to do with something pragmatic and this is just the way our systems function. Would that be a fair description to say why there wasn't an emphasis on maybe the doctor's model of, of do no harm, right? I mean, empowering individual physicians across the world to do no harm and focus on the individual versus the structures of the countries individually. Yeah, it's really a matter of what we thought were reasonable assumptions of about the pragmatics of how this would play out, namely nation states are going to play a key role. And I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were some quite ugly nationalistic behaviors. I mean, I'm in Europe and usually we can travel openly and the European market is open, but in the pandemic, the first instinct was to close the borders in some cases or close down supplies for certain medical goods like masks or gear. But after that, some, some collaboration began again, but all the distribution aspects and the logistics of getting the vaccines to people, that's where national governments still play a crucial role. The EU is, is doing some of the things together. And I mean, that's all well and fine, but it's still the national governments that then have to roll it out. And it's actually, I mean, it's quite a logistical challenge. Some of the vaccines need a cool chain um, to be brought to, to people. And all of that, I mean, just focusing on individuals alone, did not seem to be the right level of analysis. So even though you can very well ask this general question from a philosophical perspective, should we think about global distributive questions, looking at states or looking at individuals or maybe other groups, who knows? But for that pragmatic problem of vaccine distribution, we just thought it was the only reasonable starting point. Yeah, good explanation. Okay, well, I'd like to move on to the three-phase proposal. 
And you have an interesting statement in the paper that you worked on. Distributing different quantities of vaccine to different countries is discriminatory if it effectively benefits people while prioritizing the disadvantaged. It seems contrary to popular belief that giving different amounts of vaccines to different countries would be discriminatory in some way. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah. So the, the, the contrast here is between a model that gives all countries the same, well, the same amount wasn't really on the table because countries differ so fastly in population size. The proposal on the table was something proportionate to population versus, and that's what the fair priority model suggests, giving more to the countries where the pandemic is doing most harm and killing most people. And the rationale here is that ethics doesn't mean that we should treat unlike cases alike. It depends on what is being distributed. In some cases, equal treatment is, is the right thing, but vaccines are a specific kind of good. They are meant to prevent a pandemic and prevent people from dying prematurely. And for that, you can do more good if you give more of them to the countries where they are most needed. And that's why in this case, this equal treatment, like one proposal that had been out there was give each country first 3% and then 20% or 4 to 3% and then 4 to 20% of their population without taking into account how they're doing, whether they even have infections. I mean, some countries for some periods did not have any cases, uh, islands, for example, that could close their borders very well. So you would sort of waste many preventable deaths if you then just rolled out vaccines on this proportionate principle instead of prioritizing those countries that really needed them. That's the argument here. Right, right, right. Okay, so very generally, you have already outlined the three phases. One, the first phase being the minimization of death. Number two would be the environmental impact. And then number three would be the minimization of the transmission. You state that globally, every country should achieve phase one before any country can move on to phase two. Could you elaborate on a little bit why the hard stop on that particular transition? Well, the idea is very much building on what I just said before. You first want to make sure that those countries where the pandemic is doing most harm really can get enough vaccines. And then in the second phase, you also look at the indirect harms that are done by lockdowns, interruptions of supply chains, and all these economic and social consequences of the pandemic. So the idea was, again, very much that preventing deaths is more central than making sure, for example, that all kids can go to school. But of course, if you then look at the empirics, it's actually really complicated because in some countries, lockdowns don't just mean that kids don't go to school. They can also mean that people are thrown out of their livelihoods. I mean, if people need to earn their living day by day and they can't do this any longer, then there could also be preventable deaths that have to do with the lockdowns, which are the indirect consequences of the pandemic. And so when you move to phase two, you really need to then prioritize those countries where it's the lockdowns and all these other measures that do most harm and try to cut these harms down. And then you can move to countries like, for example, the Netherlands and Germany, where I live, I mean, it was hard on many people and the psychological burdens were, of course, also great, but it was manageable and there were never shortages of basic goods or so. And that was not the case in other countries. So they would need the vaccines before they then come to richer countries that can well deal with the lockdowns. That, that's the rationale between the distinctions. Yeah. And I, I mean, I personally see them as, as connected. They kind of flow together into an economic 
reality. And I think it's interesting when you and your colleagues were sitting down and, you know, putting together this framework, the idea of economic stability or economic recovery can quickly distill into some hard things to measure, right? I guess it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. So did you have any, you know, benchmarks or guidelines? Where did you pull those from? And what was the thought behind that? Yeah, we had huge discussions about this and it does get very complicated very very early on when you start to, to look into what kind of indicators you would actually use. Here's a simple way of, of seeing the problem. If you say something like, uh, let's in phase two go for how much GDP we can save by having everyone vaccinated, then a poor country would have a small increase in GDP and a rich country would have a much higher increase. So you need to be super careful in what you would measure. So it needs to be per capita first, again, because countries differ in size. And I mean, pragmatically speaking, we, we, some of us were then in touch with a few economists who do this kind of modeling. And they, they tried to, to use some data to, to compare a few countries. And it turned out to be even more complicated in details. I'm also not a statistician, so <laughs> I can't give you the de- details here. But then one actually really interesting thing happened, which was that, and that's something we hadn't anticipated when, when working on the model, which was that it was actually the richer countries, especially U- US, Europe, a few others as well, but those were among the ones that had the highest infection rates. And so in that sense, even though that's not something we had anticipated, the fact that these countries would, on their own, buy lots of doses of vaccines for themselves was, in a sense, less out of sync with the model than you might have expected. So what we had expected, what the scenarios we had tried to think through were more like, okay, some African countries have huge infection rates, huge numbers of disease, of, of deaths, and it's the rich countries hoarding, and how can more vaccines be brought to these countries? But then at least in a certain phase, the rich countries were also the ones where the death rates were really high. And so the fact that they were privately, as it were, buying lots of doses were actually sort of aligning with, with what the model would have said, although there were exceptions. I mean, some there were some countries that had very high rates and did not get access to vaccines early on, like Brazil, for example, had, had huge rates, deaths, and it took them quite long to get the first vaccines and then to roll out their vaccine com- campaign. Yeah, the psychology is very interesting. I mean, how do you anticipate a psychology that was underpinning, you know, say, you know, an American, I will use an American example, but an American example of, you know, choosing not to vaccinate had we been in a reality where a pandemic actually had no vaccine whatsoever that, you know, maybe an an African countries would just, you know, jump at the opportunity just to get the vaccine, you know, let alone we've got this security or self, like, we know that the vaccine's available. Now it's choice. Like, how do you want to, it's not a question. It's just, it baffles me. Yeah, no, we had not really dealt with this issue of vaccine hesitancy or vaccine skepticism in that paper, which is now one of the biggest problems for many, many countries and including the rich countries where, I mean, I don't know whether it's probably the same in the US and in Europe, the cities and local governments, they are really, they are building tents and, and they have buses with vaccine uh, opportunities going into different parts of the cities, trying to offer it to people. But in some places, the rates are still not sufficiently high. So, so that, that is another worry. 
which is on a completely different level and raises other kinds of questions. And one question that you get is, should it be mandatory? If, if, for example, if you work with vulnerable people, I don't know whether psychologically it would make any difference for these people if they realized how many people on this globe would be super keen <laughs> to get an opportunity to get vaccinated and they can get it and they just don't want it for whatever reason. Maybe thinking about that would change some people's minds. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, it's very complex. I mean, we're t and I'm just kind of referring to complex systems. But anyways, let's move on to a question that has more to do with what you just talked about, GDP and stock markets. As you move into phase two, which is economically focused with the indicator focusing at GDP, how much focus do you actually put on stock exchange metrics, like, you know, the big stock exchanges like United States, United Kingdom, China and Hong Kong as the measure to the economic upside, shall we say? No, that's, that's indirectly included in the sense that if you have stock market gains, they go into cross-national income and that might somehow indirectly play a role, but it's not what we were suggesting. So we were suggesting, well, keep the S-E-Y-L-L as, as a health metric and add the absolute improvements in cross-national income per vaccine dose, and then also add a poverty indicator. That's the part where it gets really complicated. Stock markets, to be honest, have very little to do these days with what the real economy in a country does and looks like. I mean, think about the first phase of the, the pandemic when the stock markets were exploding, while for lots of people, the economic situation was very dire. There are real questions here. And I mean, this would lead us far away from the Fed priority model, but they are also very interesting about whether stock markets should be treated as these kinds of indicators of where an economy stands. I mean, they are always in the news and so on. Is, is that actually a good idea or not? I, I tend to think probably not so much. Also because nowadays you don't have this high capital need for lots of investments any longer. So I think stock markets are massively overrated in terms of thinking about how well is the economy of a country doing? And I mean, we've gone here for cross-national income because that's where the numbers are available. But if you think more deeply about this, even cross-national income isn't a very good indicator. And some countries are these days experimenting with other indicators. Bhutan famously has this cross-happiness product. And there are other proposals for, for measuring how well the economy is actually doing. Uh, stock markets are not a good candidate for that. Yeah, no, I agree. Even the in in the light of climate change scenario, you have GDP as as antithetical with you know production is just not. But anyways, that's that's another topic for a different day. I I I, I do see some some relations, but you know not enough to jump into. So I'm curious about the consequences of of somebody who may be experiencing a disability and the you know, the long-term economic consequences, I guess it, it, the best way to focus would be on that individual, like rather than the economics of a, of a population, focusing on the economics of the individual, somebody that is, say, for example, has a disability status. You, you because know, of long to, COVID, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. How would you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And how did you approach that? Well, that's not really so much part of the fair priority model because that's really about the distribution of vaccine and 
it comes in in the sense that if you try to prevent as many premature deaths as possible, you try to minimize infections and thereby you also try to minimize the long-term impacts of COVID on individuals. This is going to be a really important question for, for our societies in, in the next decades, I think. Well, hopefully it will not be decades because hopefully there will be therapies that will be developed to, to help these people. But it might be that some people will have really long-term problems and then it becomes a question of health insurance. How can jobs be made yeah, yeah, adapted to, the, to their, the needs they have? They might still want to do some work, but maybe at reduced hours or so. I think that's going to be a really interesting question. And one particular point here is that I fear that there will be some people saying, well, if you didn't get vaccinated or if you had some other form of risky behavior, you do not deserve to get our solidarity for the long-term costs of that. And I think even though I, I do think in some areas individual responsibility plays an important role, here I think it would be quite misguided to say, oh, you're responsible on your own for all the consequences. Even people who did not get vaccinated, we might not fully blame them for that if they got yeah. wrong information and so on. I mean, the whole information infrastructure, it, it, I mean, for someone with a university degree and who, who reads serious newspapers, it was pretty easy to get the right kind of information on this. But for people who are not highly educated, who maybe don't, don't or maybe are even illiterate, um, don't understand the numbers very well, maybe don't think they can trust the mainstream media, it's, it's a very complicated question to what extent you can blame them for behaving in, in what we would consider misguided ways. And so I think it would be very morally dangerous to then say, oh, you're re it's, it's your responsibility that you caught COVID and now you have all these consequences to bear. I think we need to think about solidaristic ways of, of dealing with these longer term problems. That's excellent. I really have to applaud you for that because it, I think it really nicely ties in your thinking into concepts of rights. You know, there's a system, there is a model for this in terms of if I'm in a court of law, there's certain things that I just don't have the ability to give up and to extend universal health to people who have decided either, you know, with their own agency or from their society or group, the compassion is still there. So I applaud that, that we have this level of compassion in our policymaking. So does that resonate? With, yeah, with no, I, I was thinking that there's this famous paper by, by Liz Anderson where she critiques like egalitarianism and I mean this this idea that differences in, in your position of income and wealth that have to do with your own choices can be justified, uh, which, which is very popular in certain philosophical corners. And, and one of her arguments is precisely that there are certain basic goods that we owe each other no matter how we behaved in the past. So. And the example she has, it's, it's the, the, the motorcycle driver who behaves recklessly and then lies there after having had an accident. And it mm. would just not be right to then say, well, you've done the wrong thing, even though on a certain level, yes, they have done the wrong thing. But then to say, that's why we won't give you health insurance or you have to pay all for all the bills on your own, that would still not be the right thing to do. But it is a tricky question because on the other hand, you don't want to incentivize people to try recklessly. They, they also put risks on others. So 
finding the right institutional mechanisms for, on the one hand, giving people access to these basic goods that no one should be denied under no circumstances, and yet not encouraging um, risky behavior that puts risks both on, on, on oneself and on others. That is a complicated question of institutional design. Right. Okay. Let's move into the back to the paper just with one final question before we get into the into the student questions. The paper that you co-wrote, uh, maybe you can, it would be a great time to do a little bit of a plug for your colleagues, I guess, before you, you know, you jump into the next answer. How do you think the global allocation is going in comparison to your proposed model? The paper was written, I believe, a year ago, pretty much, you know, to the month uh, or submitted, right? I mean, I don't, you know, published. So how, how do you think that it's fared against the unraveling of the last 12 months? And where do you think it's going to go? Yeah, I mean, it didn't happen. But COVAX or any like international institution or government went around saying, oh, we're going to adopt the fair priority model. But that, I mean, that wasn't going to be what, what we expected, realistically speaking. One thing that happened was what I already talked about a little bit, that the rich countries got all these doses for themselves or their own citizens. And that's something you could criticize if you think, oh, no, but it should go to the international organization, COVAX, and then they would redistribute. But given that the rich countries also had these really high death rates and infection rates, that, that was not totally to be criticized from the perspective of that model. But now we are really at a point where the question is, how much is the world and in practice, that often means the richer and more powerful countries, what are they willing to do to make sure that everyone gets access to vaccines? So, so they are totally beyond this phase of vaccine nationalism that might in some way be justified because they have all the vaccines. And, and they are now talking about booster vaccinations, even for people where this is medically, maybe at least there is doubt about whether it's needed. So now would really be the time where these moral arguments but as I said earlier, also these prudent arguments about making sure that everyone gets access to vaccines, where, where this would be really relevant. But I don't see so much international appetite for, for collaboration and for uh, supporting COVAX. I mean, the, the predictions I've seen are that many countries will only have access to, to vaccines for, for the whole population in summer 2022 or even later. And by then we might see new mutations of the virus and we would need new forms of vaccinations. So I'm afraid the world is pretty far away from what the model would morally require at this stage. Yeah. Okay. That's a great answer. Did you want to mention anything about your colleagues? Oh, uh, yes. Sorry. No, <laughs> the thing... I could say so much because they are all really great philosophers, lots of them in medical ethics, but also a few others from lots of different countries. So go Google them, check out what they do. It was really a broad range of philosophical forms of expertise coming together. And I mean, in philosophy, it's not such a common thing to co-author in such large groups. So it was also a very interesting experience. It was a pretty complex process. We had version 29, 30, 31 of the paper and so on. But I learned a lot from, from this group of, of colleagues. It was really, it was a great experience, sort of exhausting when you sit there and just discuss really hard about these things. So I would say it's actually something that we might consider 
doing more often in, in the philosophical community. Yeah, well, that's I, I often describe, you know, getting philosophers to agree is like hurting cats. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And in the end, maybe not all of us were happy with every little sentence in, in the paper, but yeah, it felt yeah. like so important to, to get something out on, on this question that we all were willing, willing to compromise. Yeah, your defense on that is that that's in, intentional to to allow for continued dialogue. It's a it's a there's a, there's a function to that. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they cry ad hoc. But anyway, so so how does so this is the first question from the students. OK, so the first question, how does sale compare to other metrics that were discussed for phase one? Yeah. Were other metrics considered in this phase? Yeah, now we, we discussed quite a few. And here is why we settled on sale. I mean, it's a very complex discussion in medical ethics, but the standard way of thinking about preventing premature death would be something like, how long would this person live under normal circumstances and how many years would he or she lose because of an early death because of COVID? But if you do that, then someone who lives in a country with a very low life expectancy would maybe lose only, say, 20 years. So maybe if the person dies at 35 instead of 55, it's 20 years. Whereas if a person from a rich country where the life expectancy is higher dies at 35, then you'd have a much higher number of years lost. And so you would indirectly prioritize people from countries with a higher life expectancy. And that seemed wrong. And what SAIL does, it standardizes life expectancy across cohorts. So it still takes into account that life expectancy overall is going up. So depending on how old you are, it changes, but it's standardizing it in order to avoid this counterintuitive effect that you would get if you would just take the, the national averages here. So that sense expresses a form of equal treatment, equal moral concerns of individuals. Okay, good explanation. Number two, do you believe that more financially able countries should bear the duty of aiding poor countries and increasing their vaccination rates? The interesting thing, we've already talked about this a lot, but it's it's just a very specific, direct question. I love it. So what, how would you handle that one? Yeah. So, so, so the model looks at where vaccines should go and what order. It doesn't directly speak about who should pay for it. But if you think about the global world we live in, I would absolutely answer yes, there is a responsibility for the richer countries to support poorer countries. And as I said, to some extent it's happening, but more could be done. And, and there's also this notorious question about whether you would you should do more to to not have intellectual property uh, as a hindrance so mandatory licensing or voluntary licensing some companies offer to do it and then also technical support so that poorer countries could actually produce their own vaccines and wouldn't have to rely on other countries i mean at the moment from what i've read india which is not one of the richest countries of the world is actually one of the main suppliers for many poorer countries. What's also behind this question, and this is a very complicated issue, and sort of, yeah, you get into an area where moral questions and political questions become closely intertwined. There is a geostrategic dimension to this, in the sense that Russia and China, for example, are offering vaccines to certain countries. The Western countries are offering it to their allies. 
And so one risk, but something that we actually see happening is that access to vaccines is also used a bit as a geostrategic yeah. tool. And I think that is very problematic, but yeah, in the world we live in, in a way that was to be expected. Well, even in Canada, where I live, there's an effect where the Canadian government won't allow certain vaccines from certain countries, you know, as validated. I can't imagine that it's entirely a medical. I'm not sure about it. Yeah. I mean, in China, I read that their vaccine actually really has a much lower success rate in the sense of preventing transmission. And that's why they have to have these very radical lockdowns whenever they have a few new cases. So, but it seems very probable that there is also a bit of a geostrategic dimension to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next question is, are there any models besides the FAIR priority model that you believe would be appropriate to use when deciding how to distribute vaccines? Yeah, there was at least one that I want to mention, which was put forward by a working group of the WHO, which went for country proportionality. And that was what I had described earlier without saying that it was actually a model proposed by, by some people, where the idea was first to give every country the amount of doses they would need for 3% of the population and then for 20% of the population. And it was also mentioned in, in that paper that medical staff in all countries should get priority. In the fair priority model, we, we say that that's an empirical question, whether or not medical staff should be prioritized, depending on whether they can protect themselves. If you have all this protective gear, maybe it's actually not necessary, but on the other hand, it's still sort of likely that it's a good idea to vaccine them vaccinate them early on. So that was one other model. And then there were also a few people who just defended full-blown vaccine nationalism without any real concern for international distributions. So I'm not sure whether you want to call this a model, mm. but those voices were out there. And as, as I previously said earlier, the argument for the fair priority model, why I think it's better than the 3%, 20% model, is that you want to send the vaccines to where they can make most of a difference. So countries that need them really, and not just standardly the same treatment for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's going to lead very nicely into our next question. And it's, do you think it's fair that when mandating vaccines to people who do not want to get it, when there are people in countries who would give anything to have access to the vaccine? That is a very difficult question. And I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all answer because it depends very much on why would you make it mandatory for a certain person to be vaccinated. If, for example, someone works with vulnerable groups like patients with autoimmune diseases where the vaccines don't quite work or they cannot get vaccinated or whatever, that's a different kind of story from someone who doesn't have any health-related jobs or responsibilities and, and just doesn't want to get vaccinated. So that's a distinction I would want to draw. So what are the reasons for why we would want to make it mandatory? And then we first need to think about, okay, is, is that actually justified? And then we can ask the question, well, what role does the fact that other people might want to get these doses actually play? However, on a practical level, I mean, it's not like you could just take a few vaccine doses and send them from the vaccine center where they are not taken to some other country. I mean, it, the logistics are much more complicated. So just sort of the idea that, you know, some individuals don't want them, so just send them elsewhere. 
it's unfortunately not that simple. And that's why, yeah, I, I guess the question of who should be required mandatorily to get vaccinated needs to be very well justified. And that's probably independent of what's going on elsewhere in the world, because we are no longer in the situation where there is scarcity. It's, it's You could produce much more vaccine if you were willing to finance it. And in that sense, it's not like one dose is here, is one dose is less elsewhere. It's, it's more a matter of, of money, really. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the next question is, in vaccine distribution, older people have been prioritized because they are more likely to die of the virus. However, in the article, they stress preventing premature death. And does this mean, it's very interesting that a student would pick this up, right? The nuance of this, very smart, actually. Does this mean that the elderly would be the least prioritized in, in vaccine distribution? I mean, under your model, what is important saving the most lives for the, our life years? No, it's the short answer. And the reason is as follows. If you want to prevent premature deaths, which is what you want to do in the first phase, the empirics just say that vaccinating elderly people first is one of the best ways of getting you there. But if you had the same likelihood of death from corona of people in different countries at sort of different age points, so, so, so say... I'm making this up now. This is completely, uh, you know, a fake example. If a 45-year-old in Mexico had the same likelihood of dying from corona as an 85-year-old in the U.S., in that situation, you would want to prioritize Mexico because that person could be safe at a younger age, as it were. So it's on that country level that you would take this into account. It doesn't mean that you would not want to prioritize elderly people. What it does mean, and, and that's now the, 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 the international distribution of who should get it first. If you take the sale argument from the international to the national context, one thing that follows is that vulnerable younger people should be very high on the list of priority. And that was actually a debate in some countries. So, for example, people with organ transplants or chronic diseases, but from younger age groups, should they get the same priority as elderly people? And, and the sale argument would say definitely yes. And in some countries this was done and others not. Yeah, I don't know whether... There are any studies on the empirics of how this actually played out then? Yeah, that's really interesting. I know I can appreciate your thought experiment, as we like to call them. But I've also thought about the Titanic going down in this sort of situation. And, you know, there was a natural understanding of women and children. And that's a model that I don't hear as a philosopher. I don't hear the woman and women and children model over elderly and, and males. Right. I mean, I don't no, hear I that. I think what a weird question to have. But you can see how that that self-sorting in the Titanic model actually happened. Well, what was it based well, on? But, I but I mean, if you look at the kinds of accidents that happened at the time of the Titanic and earlier, in many cases, it would actually make sense from a very similar rationale to let women and children get safe first, because men were more likely to be able to defend themselves or to save themselves. They would typically be stronger. So... I mean, it's, it's, it's a horribly sexist and outdated norm in a way, but and people also had very outdated pictures about you know women always being weak and so on. But the idea was in a way similar, namely the more vulnerable individuals should be safe first, and the others should then would then hopefully be able to help themselves. And in that sense, you would have a higher 
total amount of people being saved. At least that is a maybe a bit yeah. benevolent way of trying to rationalize where this would come from. The, the utilitarian keeps coming all the time. It's always there. It's at least we're always aware of it. Greatest good for the greatest number. You know, Lisa, we have to wrap up. I think what I'm going to actually do, because I could get into this. This is really exciting. But we just simply don't have time anymore. So where are you at right now with the conversation? And is there anything that you think would, would nicely summarize your experience and some of the important points that you would like to, you know, leave the listeners uh, with? Yeah. I mean, one of the big questions that this whole discussion and then also, you know, watching what played out in reality left me, left me with was really, we have wonderful abilities to innovate on the technical and medical side. I mean, how rapidly they develop these vaccines is fantastic. But what we fail to do is to innovate as quickly and as successfully on the side of institutions and social practices. And and that's why we still don't have a mechanism for how these vaccines would actually get to everyone on the globe. So I think we need to really urgently ask this question, how can we adapt our institutions, find better solutions, address these collective action problems. That, that's in a way, it's, it's a social science problem where philosophy can also maybe make some contribution because all these wonderful technical innovations and biomedical innovations, they, they won't help us if, they, if we don't have the social institutions to make sure that they then reach everyone. And so I think we need far more intense collaboration on this, also between the, the medical and, and the social scientific and philosophical side on how we can make sure that the benefits of the technological innovations can then also do all the good that they can really do if we have the right institutions for them. Nicely said. Isn't that also a plug for more interdisciplinary support? Well, thanks again, Lisa, for joining us. And it was a pleasure to have you. We'd like to thank the audience for joining us. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors for the podcast series, which is a part of the Epidemic Ethics WHO initiative, which has been supported by the FCDO Welcome Grant. More information will be left in the description. We'd also like to thank Professor Nicole Hassoun for her executive production, Dr. Ryan Woltz for writing and producing. Thanks again, everybody, for today's episode. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our content or explore the exciting work being done by our parent organization, the Global Health Impact Project, you can check out our website at global-health-impact.org new in the description below. The Global Health Impact Project hopes to continue to support efforts like this podcast to provide information about and advocate for access to essential medicines. Also follow the Global Health Impact Project's social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, don't forget, talking is the best medicine.